I'm going to read some verses from Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 17 to verse 19. And this is part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most concentrated record we have of anything that Jesus preached. I'm going to read just three verses, and then I'm going to refer to later verses in this same chapter in just a few minutes. Matthew 5, verse 17, reading from the New International Version. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the least stroke of a pen, sorry, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law, until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's as far as I'm going to read for now. And I suggest to you that those must have been some of the most disappointing words that ever came from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why. If Israel had a problem, it was this. Long ago in their history, God had given to them the law. He had called Moses at Mount Sinai, given to Moses the law, and in particular Ten Commandments, which is what this passage is talking about. And ever since that day, you could write one word across the history of Israel, and it's the word failure. The historical books of the Old Testament record the details of that failure. The poetic books weep about that failure. The prophetic books preach about that failure. And now with the history of failure, Jesus Christ has come on the scene preaching good news. And I imagine lots of these folks pricked up their ears. If anybody needs good news, it's us. And I imagine as many of them went up the hillside to listen to Jesus preach this Sermon on the Mount, they probably said to each other, what do you think the good news is going to be? And I imagine somebody probably said, well, I think, you know, up until now, God has been so difficult to get on with, we're always upsetting him. Everything he asks of us, we seem to fail to produce, I think God is going to soften a little bit. Somebody else says, I agree with that. I think the good news is going to be God is not going to be quite as demanding as he has been in the past. And somebody else probably says, I think, you know, after today, maybe we're only going to have six commandments instead of ten. We're going to ditch a few. And the reason why I suggest that is because in verse 17, Jesus seems to imply that by saying, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, please don't get the wrong idea. I've not come from heaven with an apology for a law you've been unable to keep. I've not come to abolish them, but here's the good news, which we're going to talk about tonight. I have come to fulfill them, whatever that means. And I want to unpack that with you today. I'm going to talk about three things regarding the law. I want to talk first about the purpose of the law and ask the question, why did God give a law that nobody seems able to keep? Then I want to talk about the effect of the law and ask the question, what does the law actually do for us? Then I want to talk about the fulfillment of the law. What did Jesus mean when he said, I've come to fulfill them? First of all, then, the purpose of the law. 
and uh, I need you to listen carefully for a few minutes because what I'm going to say in these first few minutes you need to understand if what I'm going to say later is really going to make sense and excite you. If you take a little nap during the first five minutes you'll miss the punchline when it comes. What is the purpose of the law? I don't know if you ever asked this question. Why, when God gave the Ten Commandments, did he give these Ten Commandments? Why didn't he give twenty? Why didn't he give six? Why these ten? You see, whatever else you might agree about the law, it is so high, so demanding, humanly speaking, so unreasonable that no one has been able to keep the law of God. Without knowing anything else about you, I'd be quite prepared to look you in the eye and say to you this, you have broken the law of God. And you wouldn't get hot on the collar and say, how dare you suggest such a thing, you don't even know me. You wouldn't even blink. You'd look me back in the eye and say, and so have you. Mm -hmm. Because you know, and I know, no man, no woman, no boy, no girl has ever kept the law of God. Why then did God give a law we can't keep? It doesn't sound very reasonable, does it? If you're ever involved in making rules, the basic principle in making rules is that any rule people can't keep is a bad rule. Yet God has given to us a set of requirements every one of us in this building tonight has failed to keep. Then, why did God give them? On what criteria did God determine what the law was going to be? Well, there's an answer to that question. And to answer that question, I want to compare two verses with you in the New Testament, both of which describe what all sin involves. The first is in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. And just while you're turning to that, let me remind you that the word sin literally means to miss the mark. Apparently the word was used in archery. If somebody took an arrow and they fired it at a target and they missed the target, it was called sin. If they missed by half a centimeter, it was called sin. If they missed by half a meter, it was called sin. If they missed by half a kilometer, it was called sin. If they shot in the opposite direction, it was called sin. Because sin is not a measurement of how bad we are. Sin is a measurement of how good we're not. Do you understand the difference? You see, if you miss a bus by a minute, you've missed it. If you miss it by five minutes, you've missed it. If you miss it by an hour, you've missed it. You don't congratulate yourself on missing a bus by a minute, do you? <laughs> you know, there is a sense in which God actually isn't interested in how bad we are. He is interested in how good we're not. Sin is missing a mark, whether it's by an inch or a mile. Now that means that sin is relative. We don't know what sin is unless we know what the mark is that we have missed. Now, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now John says there, every time anybody sins, no matter what the nature of the sin is, we know what they've done, they have broken the law of God. In other words, he says, the law represents the target that we miss every time we sin. Now that doesn't answer our question, why is the law what it is? But keep that verse in mind, and compare it with the second verse, which is in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And in Romans 3.23, you probably know this verse by heart, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Paul says that every time anybody sins, no matter what the nature of the sin is, you know what they've done. They've come short of the glory of God, whatever that is, and we'll see that in just a moment. Now, put these two verses together. 
If John says the sin is to break the law, to come short of the demands of the law, if my left, here, my, my left hand here represents the law, to sin is to come short of the demand of the law. That's what John says. Paul says, to sin is to come short of the glory of God. If my right hand here represents the glory of God, to sin is to come short of the glory of God. Now, if John says the target we have missed is the law of God, and Paul says the target we have missed is the glory of God, that tells us that the law of God and the glory of God equal the same thing. Therefore, to answer the question, why is the law of God what it is, we have to ask another question. What is the glory of God? Now, the word glory occurs with slight variation of meaning in Scripture, depending on its context, but essentially the, gl the glory of God is the character of God the moral character of God. If I can quote to you from Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words, then you'll believe me. He says, the glory of God is the character of God, what he essentially is and does. The kind of thing John had in mind when writing in his gospel, he said of Jesus in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. When John said we saw his glory, what did he see? Well, he didn't see a bright light six inches above Jesus' head in the shape of a lightsaber, which is how artists sometimes portray this. But he is saying we saw in Jesus Christ the character of God. We saw what God was like. In other words, those of us who are kids in Nazareth, who kicked the ball up and down the road with Jesus as a boy, went hiding in the hills with him and hunting in the woods with him. And the way he acted, the way he reacted, the way he played with his friends, the way he talked to his mother, we saw what God was like. When he began to work in his father's carpenter's shop, the way he went about his business, the way he paid his bills on time, the way he invoiced accurately for the work he had done, the way he got up early to put on somebody's roof that had blown off in the gale during the night, we saw what God was like. When he began his public ministry, says John, the way he went about that ministry, the way he would cross the road to sit and talk with a dirty woman everybody else was embarrassed to be seen with. We saw what God was like. When a leper came down the road, ringing his bell, saying, unclean, and Jesus crossed the road, took the man's bell, touched the man. Do you notice Jesus always touched lepers? We saw what God was like. Because the glory of God is the character of God. Now, if this is true of Jesus, it wasn't intended only to be true of Jesus. Because when God created human beings in the beginning, it says, God said, let us make man in our image. Now, of course, theologians have debated what is the nature of the image of God. But essentially, the image of God is his moral image. You see, there are things about God that are not true of human beings. God is omnipotent or powerful. That isn't true of us. He's omniscient. He knows, he knows everything there is to know. That isn't true of us. He's omnipresent. He's in all places all the time. That isn't true of us. He is immutable. He doesn't change. That isn't true of us. He's eternal. He has no beginning. will have no end. That isn't true of us. So in what sense were we made in his image? We were created in his moral image. That is, he created human beings in order that in human beings might be seen the moral character of God. In other words, if you and I were a fly on the wall in the Garden of Eden, and we were to watch the way Adam treated Eve, we would have seen what God was like. He would have been very kind because God is kind. He would have been loving because God was loving. If we saw the way Eve treated Adam, we would have seen what God was like. If we saw the way they went about their work, the way they patted the dog and stroked the cat, the way they fed the chickens and cleaned out the guinea pig, you would have seen what God was like. 
Because to be in his image means you look at man you see for God is right, in his moral character. That's what the word image means. I have three children, my eldest daughter was born with something of a problem which fortunately is going away and her basic problem is that people used to say she looked like me. <laughs> You'll imagine that's the problem, she's a girl. A friend came to visit me one day, I hadn't seen him for 15 years. I was sitting in my office at Chapinray Hall in England and my phone rang, it was my secretary, she said there's a gentleman here with his wife, he'd like to see you. She told me his name, I said I haven't seen him for 15 years, she said that's what he just told me. I said, uh, I'm just with somebody right now, give them a cup of coffee, I'll be through in about ten minutes. When I came through and greeted him, he said, I didn't know you had a daughter. I said, yes I do, I have two and a son. How do you know now I've got a daughter? He said, because I was sitting having my cup of coffee a few moments ago, and a little girl walked by, and I said to my wife, look at that, there's a little child's price with a dress on. <laughs> then he said this, she's your image. What did he mean? He meant I looked at her, she reminded me of what you were like. When God created human beings to be in his image, he created human beings in such a way that when people look at a man, a woman, a boy or girl, they were designed to see what God is like. But something went wrong. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We no longer show what God is like. And if the law of God is equal to the glory of God, when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave the law in order to reveal what God is like so that human beings might understand what they are supposed to be like, having been created in his image. So when God gave the law and said, you shall not steal, it wasn't because stealing isn't nice, though it isn't, but that isn't the reason. The reason why God said you shall not steal is because God is not a thief. Man was made to be in his image, to so do not steal. When he said you shall not bear false witness, it's because God never tells lies. A man was made to be in his image, so don't ever bear false witness. When he said you shall not covet, it's because God isn't greedy. A man was made to be in his image. When he said you shall not commit adultery, it's because God is totally faithful. A man was made to be in his image, so don't ever commit adultery. When he said you shall not murder, it's because God doesn't murder. A man was made to be in his image. When he said, six days shall you labor, on the seventh day do no work, he tells us why. In that command it says, because God rested on the seventh day. Not because he was tired, of course. He wasn't exhausted having spent six days creating the universe. God rested on the seventh day not because he is tired, but because the work was finished. That's why for Adam, for man, the first day is the day of rest. Adam was created on the sixth day. It was a great day to have been created. What's happening tomorrow? The day off. <laughs> Why? Is Adam tired having been, is it tiring, getting created? <laughs> no, you see, we're to rest in the utter sufficiency of God. And the law was given, not as an arbitrary set of rules, the law was given to reveal what God is like. Children, honor your parents. Why? Because in the Trinity, the Son says, I always do those things to please the Father. And human beings are made to be in God's image. So children, honor your parents. You see, God didn't simply give a set of guidelines to Moses because they're all getting messed up down there. The law is far more profound than that. The law was given to reveal what God is like. So that human beings will understand what they are supposed to be like, having been created in his image. 
So my first point is this, the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God. But the second thing I want to talk about is the effect of the law. If the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God, the effect of the law is to reveal the failure of man, human being. When Moses came down the mountain with a tablet of stone in his hand, the first command said this, you'll have no other gods before me. The simple reason there are no other gods. The second command said, you'll not make yourself any graven image and bow down and worship it. And when Moses came down the mountain, he discovered the children of Israel in his absence had pulled their gold, melted it down, built a golden calf, and were having some kind of orgy around this golden calf. And when Moses saw them worshipping the golden calf, Moses was shocked. So shocked, do you remember? He took a tablet of stone and he smashed them on the ground. Had to go back up the mountain to get some more. Moses was shocked. God wasn't. Because God did not learn something new about man that day. Man learned something new about himself. He discovered, I cannot be what God created me to be. You see, Romans 7 verse 7 says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. In other words, I grew up to my neck in sin, enjoying every bit of it. And then the law came. The law didn't make me a sinner, it simply exposed me of my, to my sin. One of the things God has to do with every one of us, if we're really going to know his provision for living a life of victory and power and fulfillment, is to come face to face with our own utter bankruptcy and inability in ourselves to ever be what God created us to be. It's not just what we do that is the problem, you see, it's what we are that is the problem. Now, I won't read this, but it's in the next verses in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, have you heard it said, you must not kill, murder is the meaning? And they probably said, yes, we've heard that one, we agree with that law. I sent you, said Jesus, if you are angry with your brother, even though you'd never dare put a knife into his back, you'd never dare put a bullet between his eyes, you are already guilty of murder. Have you heard it said, you must not commit adultery? They probably said, we don't do that. I sent you, said Jesus, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, even though you may not know her name, even though you don't know where she lives, even though you'd never have the courage to go and knock on her door, you are guilty already of adultery. Have you heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which sounds perfectly reasonable, doesn't it? That's your dentist, of course. I sent you, said Jesus, if somebody hits from the face, don't hit them back, turn the other cheek. If they take you one mark, go two. If they take your coat, give your cloak as well. Have you heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? I say to you, love your neighbor, pray for those who despitefully use you. And I can imagine the beads of perspiration standing up in the foreheads of these people as they probably turned to each other and said, this isn't good news. I thought he was going to give us good news. This is terrible news. It was bad enough before and we couldn't do these things. Now we can't even think about them. What was Jesus doing? He was doing for them what he must do for you. He was backing them into the corner in order to discover that no matter how much I think I can handle what is required of me, I may not commit the act, but what I am is corrupt. In myself, I cannot be what God tells me to be and requires me to be. We've got to face that. What does God expose our failure? 
Well, I'll tell you, it's never in order to condemn us. It's never in order to humiliate us. It's never that he might rub our nose in the dirt. It is always that he might transform us once we acknowledge it. That's why before we ever enjoy the goodness of the good news of the gospel, we have to face the badness of our own condition, the diagnosis of our own condition. We live in a day, of course, when we love to be positive and affirming and everything needs to be good that we tell people. But you'll never understand what Jesus Christ can do until we are aware of the utter need and depravity of our own heart. You see, if you went to visit your doctor, you don't like this kind of... uh, negative stuff, talking about what's wrong all the time, you decide, I'm going to just be positive. My doctor usually wants to know what's wrong. He's pretty negative, you see. So you go into your doctor's uh, office and you say, good morning, doctor. Could you give me a bottle of medicine, please? Pink medicine. He says, I can't give you some pink medicine. Yes, you can. You say, give me that strawberry-flavored stuff I had last time. I enjoyed it. I can't just give you some strawberry-flavored pink medicine. What's wrong with you? And you say, uh-oh, here we go again. He's so negative. And he asks you to do some rather embarrassing things. Just stick your tongue out. There. And he says, oh dear. Then he asks you some, you know, very embarrassing questions. You get up in the night and you say, uh, yeah. Sin. Everything from then on would be fine. He is more interested in my sin, the cause of my sin. That's why Jesus said, I'm not suggesting whether you commit adultery, but whether you lust in your heart. That's the cause. Whether you murder or are angry, that is the cause. It's what you are, not what you do. You see, some of us don't have the opportunity to do what's deep in our hearts we would like. Does that let you off the hook? You see, if the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God and the effect of the law is to reveal the failure of man, then the third issue is the fulfillment of the law. That Jesus said in this verse, verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. What does he mean? What is he talking about? How is the law going to be fulfilled? Or to change the language without changing the meaning, how is the glory of God going to be restored in the human experience because the law of God and the glory of God is the same thing. Well, let me read you three verses from three different parts of the scripture and then it will start to make sense, I hope, and start to become exciting, I hope. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 to 27, let me read you these verses. How is the law going to be fulfilled? Well, how is the glory of God going to be restored in the human experience. Colossians 1.24 says this, Now I rejoice, sorry, verse 25, I have become its servant, says Paul, that is a servant of the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations that is now disclosed to the saints. Let me pause there a moment. Paul says, I am presenting to you the word of God in its fullness. Now we have the whole story now. We haven't had it until now, but there's nothing to add to this. This is the word of God in its fullness. 
It involves what he calls a mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations. In other words, says Paul, up until now, when a prophet has prophesied, he's gone back home, sat down, scratched his head and said, something's missing here. When Moses received the law, went back to his tent, sat down and scratched his head, he said, something's missing here. There's a mystery involved in this. Now, says Paul, that mystery has been at last revealed. In verse 27, For then God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of what? Glory. And that does not mean heaven. In evangelical slang, we tend to talk about glory as being heaven. We say people die and go to glory. That isn't the use of the word in Scripture. Glory, heaven may be glorious, but glory is what you and I have come short of. All have sinned and come short. It's the target we've missed. Glory is what John says we saw in Jesus. The Word became flesh, lived among us. We saw his glory. Now he says, this has been the missing ingredient at last has been made known. Christ in you, not alongside you, not as your guide simply, not simply as your helper, but Christ in you, living his life in your body is your hope of hitting the target. Let me come back to that in a moment. Let me take you to Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. Jeremiah 31, and in this passage, God is speaking to Jeremiah about the new covenant that he is going to establish with Israel. And he says, verse 33, This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, now listen to this, I'll put my law in their mind and write it on their heart, whatever that means, we'll come to that in a moment. I will be their God, and they'll be my people. The new covenant, says God to Moses, to, to Jeremiah, is not going to involve a rewriting of the law, but a relocating of the law. Up until now, the law has been on tablets of stone, kept in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the Temple in Jerusalem. That same law says, God, I'll write in your heart, in your mind, I'll be your God. We'll come back to that. Let me give you the third verse. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 27. And uh, here, God is also speaking to Ezekiel about the new covenant. And he says, Ezekiel 36 verse 27, I'll put my spirit in you. By the way, that was going to be something new. Up until now, as Jesus said to the disciples, the spirit is with you and will be in you. That's what Jesus said in John 14, speaking about Pentecost. So looking forward to Pentecost, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. I'll put my spirit in you. And the result is, you'll keep my decrees and keep my law. Now let's put these verses together. Christ in you is your hope of hitting the target. I'll take the law and write it in your heart, write it in your mind. I'll put my spirit in you. I'll move you to follow my decrees. And I want to suggest to you, this is all what's involved in fulfilling the law. And I'll make a statement, and then I'll illustrate it. What was a command under the old covenant is going to become a promise under the new covenant. What is a command under the old covenant is going to become a promise under the new covenant. Let me illustrate this to you. I heard a true story one day 
the man who has converted to Christ in a prison in England. He was in prison for stealing, he was a thief. While he was there, somebody had come to him and witnessed to him and talked to him about Christ. And as a result, he became a Christian. And when he left the prison, one of the first things he wanted to do was to visit a church. And on his first Sunday of release, he went to the church. He didn't know which church to go to, he just picked any church at random. He went in, sat down at the back, looked up to the front, and there on the wall at the front of the church were written the Ten Commandments. Five down one side, five down the other side. And he thought to himself, that's the last thing I want to see. I know my failure, I know my history. The last thing I want to do is to sit and read those laws that only condemn me. But he did read them. Maybe the service was a bit long or it got a bit tedious and he began to read them. And as he began to read them, he realized he was reading them very differently to the way he'd read them before. Previously when he read them, they said things like this, you shall not steal. It was a command. But this morning when he read it, it said, you shall not steal. It was a promise. If I can put words into his mouth, he might well have said, thank you, Lord, why? Because I put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decrees and keep my law. He used to say, you shall not bear false witness. It was a command. But this morning it said, you shall not bear false witness. It was a promise. Thank you, Lord. Why? Because I put my, because Christ in you is your hope of hitting the target. It used to say, you shall not commit adultery. It was a command. But this morning it said, you shall not commit adultery. It was a promise. Thank you, Lord. Why? Because I put my law in your mind, on your heart, I'm your God. It used to say, you shall not covet. It was a command, but this morning it said, you shall not covet. It was a promise. Thank you, Lord. Why? Because I've come not to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And the very things that had only ever been command, uh, command that condemned became promises that liberated. Isn't that fantastic? You see, that's the gospel. The gospel is not just getting off the hook so you can get to heaven when you die. That's a wonderful prospect. In all the preaching of Jesus, in all the preaching we have in the book of the Acts, there are parts of 19 messages in the book of Acts, going to heaven was never the reason for becoming a Christian. It is the consequence. The reason is to be reconciled to God that once again God might restore us to the purpose for which he created us that your life, that my life, might begin to show what God is like, once again. And you see, the command that as long as they're external on tablets of stone can only but condemn us, now when written by the Spirit of God in our hearts as he lives in us the life of Jesus, what he commanded in the old covenant, he now promised. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 and 4. Let me read this to you. Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. Paul writes there, What the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. In other words, the law was okay, but human ability, the sinful nature, the flesh was unable to fulfill its demands. So what the law was powerless to do was weakened by the sinful nature. God did 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so he condemns sin in sinful man listen to this in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit we're going to come back to that verse later this week by the way he says there what the law could not do all the law can ever do is expose our condition and leave us guilty God has done by implanting his own spirit in us in order that the righteous requirements of the law be fully met in us when the law says you shall not steal you don't why? because you're a little more disciplined than you used to be? no because God works in you now to will and do of his good pleasure and this is the miracle that we call regeneration the life of God implanted in the human soul and when you understand that when we grasp this you discover you've got a whole new Bible you discover you've got a whole new set of promises you didn't know were there you thought they were always commands but now by the Holy Spirit's indwelling they become promises anybody here today with a problem with stealing? I've got a promise to you you'll find it in Exodus chapter 20 it used to be a command it used to be written on tablets of stone but now written by the Holy Spirit in your heart it says this you will not steal nobody living under the in the fullness of the Spirit of God steals because God is not a thief and his purpose in you now is to restore you into his own image anybody here facing sexual temptations you can hardly cope with here's a promise for you you'll find in Exodus chapter 20 it used to be a command written on tablets of stone now it's a promise written by the spirit in your heart it says this you will not commit adultery that's a promise nobody living by the fullness and the fullness of the spirit of God commits adultery somebody here tonight is greedy I've got a promise for you to be a command written on tablets of stone you'll find it in Exodus chapter 20 you will not cover what a relief you can relax and not be greedy about what other folks have it's a promise somebody here tonight for whom things become too important and you get your priorities all messed up here's a promise there used to be a command written on tablets of stone it says you will have no other gods before me it's a promise you will have Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit to fill your life with himself you won't struggle with having other gods before him you see all the commands that God gave left human beings utterly helpless and hopeless and pathetically impoverished aware only of their failure until Jesus came and said I've not come to abolish the law I've not come from heaven with an apology for a law you've been unable to keep because the law reveals the character of God that's why he said not a single dot from any eye not a single stroke from any T will disappear from the law because God doesn't change heaven and earth will pass away he said 
The law is more secure than the earth on which we stand. It's even more secure than the heaven that we anticipate because the law reveals the character of God. But here's what I've come to do. This is what's exciting. This is what's good about the good news. I have come to fulfill it. I've come to inhabit the life of any man, any woman, any boy, any girl from any background who's been in the grip of any sin, who's been locked into any habit. And as they allow me to fill their lives with myself, says Jesus in effect, yes, I'll fulfill the law. Now you're saying to me, does that mean I can be perfect? Isn't that what you're thinking? The answer is no. Let me read you one last verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, where Paul says there, and we haven't time to look at the context, but he's talking about the old covenant and contrasting it with the new covenant. In fact, what I've said tonight could have come from this chapter. I'll read verse 17. The Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now notice this. With unveiled faces, nothing has been asked in the Lord Jesus Christ. We reflect his glory. Notice the tense of this verse. He doesn't say in the past tense we have been transformed into his likeness. Nor does he say in the future tense we will be transformed into his likeness. But in the present continuous tense we are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And this of course is the measure of spiritual growth the measure of our spiritual growth is not that we know more of the Bible this year than last year, though that is good, of course. It's not that we go to more, we, we go to more services and meetings than we did last year. That may be good. It's not that we engage in more evangelism than last year. All these things are good. But the real measure of spiritual growth is this, that people more readily see Jesus in you this year than they did last year, which means in a very practical way, why the way I as a husband treat my wife should more quickly remind her of what God is like. The way as a parent we treat our kids gives them the right to grow up in a confusing world, to come home, close the door, look into the face of mum and dad and say, that's what's real, that's what's true. The way we go about our business, the way we talk to our neighbours next door, and perhaps more importantly, the way we talk about them when they're not listening but begin to show more readily what God is like. From one degree of glory to another into his likeness, and one day when we arrive in heaven, this will be completed. I'm so looking forward to that, because, you see, I'm a mess. Don't look so surprised, so are you. <laughs> you and yourself are aware of all the battle and conflict which we will talk about this week that goes on within your heart. It's going to be a wonderful day to die and leave this body behind. A friend of mine died recently. His widow asked me to conduct his funeral. I'm not used to conducting funerals. It's not something I... I in fact, he's the only funeral I ever conducted. 
So what do I say? He was a good friend. It was unexpected that he should die. And I talk about what's good about dying. There must be something good about it. And I thought up a whole list of things that are good about dying. One of the good things about dying is you say goodbye to your old sinful nature. You'll never again struggle with that. You'll be forever perfected. You'll be back in the Garden of Eden. I turned to my friend who was dead. <laughs> I said, Frank, he was in his coffin. You've got the best deal here. And to my amazement, the congregation broke out in applause. You don't do that at funerals normally. Hey, it's going to be a good day when I die. Who said amen? <laughs> I didn't know my mother-in-law was here. <laughs> but in the meantime, what is the gospel? It's restoring the image that was first implanted in Adam, the image of God, which he lost, became short of the glory of God. So what's the solution? Christ in you is your hope of the glory, getting back to being the man and woman you were created to be. In these next three nights, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I hope you can join us, 7.30 each night. We're going to talk about this, what it means to experience the fullness of God. There cannot be anything more important, anything higher for any human being than to experience what Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 3, that you may know the fullness of God. And the whole point of God filling us with himself is that he might restore once again his character, his image, the men and women, boys and girls, the kids in your home, the neighbors on your street, the folks in your office. They want to know what God is like. Just hang around you for a while. And see something, only something. Still there, but something. Of what he is like. And you're living a Christian life.